everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. What I didn't understand at that point was how the bulk of couples therapists don't address sexual issues, which is insane to me. First and foremost, it's a larger relationship issue. Sex is just one part. Even when there's an issue sexually, it's not just a sexual issue, right? It's a trust issue or a body image issue or a emotional intimacy issue in addition to a sexual issue. So I'm actually coaching and interweaving couples therapy with guidance and healing We're very explicit when it comes to our media in terms of the images we portray and sex is used to sell everything here. And yet we are extremely repressed. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am super excited to have you on the show for a lot of reasons, but one of them is we share a bit of geographical history. I was born in the 60s in New York, Uh and I spent the second half of my life living in Atlanta, Georgia. And I think think you had a similar path. Did I get that right? You did. In fact, it was a little more severe than that because I didn't even, I mean, not that Atlanta back in the late 60s and 70s was the, you know, city it is today. It was not. But I was, I moved from Manhattan um, where I lived with, you know, my family lived until I was about nine to uh, a little island off the southeast coast of Georgia where Atlanteans go to vacation called St. Simon's Island, Sea Island. So that's where I grew up. Oh, but where do you live now? I live in California now. Yeah, oh, no, like- you're on the West Coast now. Okay. All right. Well, we actually shared that same path because before I moved to Florence, I moved from Atlanta to Hermosa Beach in LA. All right. So literally we- uh, Florence. Yeah. Yeah, I actually moved. I have lived so many different places and I moved to Los Angeles from Chicago where I had lived for 17 years and that was the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Amazing. My childhood home. So. All right. So speaking of New York, you grew up in New York and you always knew that you wanted to be a therapist, but how did you find yourself interested in becoming a sex therapist, because that sounds like a different kind of therapist. Yeah, it's a different kind of therapist. I was first and foremost, and am first and foremost, a relationship therapist and a couples therapist. And what happened during my training was, and that's what I always wanted to be. I didn't always want to be a sex therapist. Right. Although 
wouldn't have been surprised if I did. But what I it took me a while and, you know, into my adulthood to to realize what an unusual upbringing I had because I was always really comfortable with the topic. And so when I was in graduate school learning to be a couples relationship therapist and I was doing my training and getting supervised, um, you bring your cases to your supervisor. This is what the couple presented. What should I do? That kind of thing. And they kept presenting me with these sexual issues, among other issues. And my supervisors and trainers, when I would bring this to them, would look at me like I was some sort of perv. Like, why, you know, why are these couples bringing this up to you? And why are you so into this? What's going yeah, on? And, and yeah. I was like, I'm not into it. They're just bringing it up. But what I realized is that they, you know, we we sense when someone's open to that and when they're not. And what I didn't understand at that point was how the bulk of couples therapists don't address sexual issues, which is insane to me. And so I accidentally became got a subspecialty and then got known for sex therapy because I was like, what the hell? You're not going to, you don't, not only do you think I'm weird for bringing this up when it's such a central issue to a couple's life and they're mentioning it to me, but you're not, you don't have to know how to help me help them. So I decided to go and get my own training and figured it out. All right, let's talk about training a little bit. After you got your master's at NYU, you did a uh, fellowship training in sexual therapy. So I have visions, maybe they're male visions. I don't know. I have visions in my, probably are, of, of, what, of what I would think I would like the training to be. What, what, what was the actual training like? Well, you know, it's interesting because I ended, I actually did two masters and a PhD and I got this fellowship training at the same time I was doing my PhD. So I had actually gotten it at that point, a master's in human sexuality, which in many ways was more of a sex therapy training than even the sex therapy fellowship. The fellowship was in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU. And I was the first ever non-psychiatry, it was for psychiatry residents, MD students, like, you know, focusing on psychiatry. And, and I had to like convince them to admit me because I was not an MD. I was a PhD candidate and they thought, and it turned out, and, and then they did it in the old Masters and Johnson model where you have um, a male female team. So they had a hard time finding a male psychiatry resident who would be willing to partner with this lowly non-MD PhD candidate. But of course, I ended up schooling them all because I had already done this master's and had a lot of the training. But the, the way that I really got trained, and I think what will be most interesting to you, is by, for all intents and purposes, desensitization. So every week, our prof my professor would send us out on these field trips. So you have to go to 42nd Street when 42nd Street was still remember, remember. Street not what it is today. Yeah, and we're yeah. all these strip clubs and porn clubs. And you have to go into a peep show and get the woman there to tell you her story. Or you have to go to a lesbian bar and pass. Or you have to go to this S&M support group. Um, or you, you know, and so we had these assignments, sometimes alone, sometimes in groups. And it was all just exposing us to, I mean, I got exposed to absolute S&M clubs, dungeons, voyeuristic clubs. I mean, the craziest things uh, I got exposed to. You yeah. must be a hell of a lot of fun at a cocktail party when people ask you what it is that you do for a living. <laughs> I mean, there's probably two people. One, the last guy I interviewed was an FBI hostage negotiator. 
and you know, people like flock to him at parties for stories. But I gotta believe you're coming in seconds because you're <laughs> like really, really interesting stuff. Okay, so we've we've talked about a sex therapist, but what does a sex therapist actually do? Yeah. Well, I think what you may, when you talk about the male fantasy of what I actually do, you know, I think a lot of people confuse sex therapy with sex surrogacy, right? So a lot of times when people hear I'm a sex therapist and they don't understand what that is or where they hear of a sex therapist, they think that person, you know, is coaching people in the bedroom. Like That's literally. what I thought. Oh, yeah. Or having sex to demonstrate with them, right? And not only is that illegal in most states, but that is not at all what I do. Um, it's all, you know, in the office or now in today's world, remotely via Skype or whatever. But I, you know, first and foremost, it's a larger relationship issue. Sex is just one part, even when there's an issue sexually. It's not just a sexual issue, right? It's a trust issue or a body image issue or a emotional intimacy issue in addition to a sexual issue. So I'm actually coaching and and interweaving couples therapy with guidance and healing around the sexual issues that the couple has. And then they have homework assignments and they come back the next week and report in. And, you know, we sort of often are rebuilding their sex life from the ground up or reorienting it or healing it or whatever needs to be done. Did you see uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's goop uh, sex thing that she did? I, you know, I, someone else was mentioning that to me. I have not seen it yet. No. Okay. Well, there was one, I, I'm not going to do a good job explaining it. I wanted to ask you about it, but I'll describe it. And if it rings a bell, you can tell me what this was. But basically there was um, a couple and they were doing some tantra, tantric, tantra type tantra. stuff where he was like moving his hand over her body and she was like flowing in rhythm with it. And it pretty much looked like with their clothes on it, that we were all watching her have an orgasm. So is that a possible thing? And, and what is that? It is a possible thing. It's not something, it's not the kind of work I teach people how to do that through talking and describing. I don't, do it in vivo, right? And, you know, I don't actually say, okay, now lie down and put your hand, you know, I don't do what you probably saw. But uh, what they're talking about is tantric. I actually cover that a lot. I have a chapter in my latest book, Quantum Love, which is the chapter is called Quantum Sex. And, um, and it's all about how, because, you know, for most of us, especially in the Western world, sexual stimulation and arousal is focused and centered in the genitals, right? That's where we feel it, which is great and wonderful. But what Tantra and Taoist techniques and more Eastern ancient techniques, but also techniques in terms of what we're learning now about how energy moves, you can actually move and pull that sensation up So you're actually spreading it. You know, that's how you have seven chakra orgasms or full body orgasms. So it's about, you know, Tantra is really a kind of spiritual element, an energetic element that you add to sex or that you encompass around your sex life or you insert into your sex life, depending on how you want to work with it. And so what this couple you probably saw doing is he was moving energy and she was moving her body and she must have been someone who was in relatively good practice because this isn't something that most couples would be able to do the first time, have an orgasm 
Oh, no, you know, she was teaching it. It was yeah. her and her husband demonstrating it. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I want to talk about porn, if that's okay with you. What are your thoughts on the, the, uh, the access that everybody has now um, digitally to it for free all the time? Is that helping couples? Is it hurting couples? Is it a bad thing that, you know, the, the, the 16 year old boy doesn't have to go to the playboy, you know, the store to buy playboy and sneak it. And now he's got it in his back pocket. Is that affecting how we, how that child views it? So I know that there's multiple questions there, but I just love your overall thoughts on it. Well, I am not anti-porn as okay. a general rule. I think there is a role for it in an otherwise healthy sexual situation alone or with a partner, where it becomes a problem is where it becomes, um, it starts to sort of, uh, well, two things. One, it, it can become, and many men, this is what we see with quote unquote porn addiction, is that it becomes this sort of compulsive uh, way to deal with stress, anxiety, you know, whatever your issues are, especially during the pandemic, when people were so stressed out, they started to, a lot of men especially started turning to that. And it was just, it's just this, uh, it can start to take over their lives. And I've seen that happen in, in many cases. What I think is most compelling to me and something that I've talked to my three sons about incessantly, because there's all of this new research. This is the first generation of young men who are, are have who have had this kind of constant access and what we are now learning through the research is that you know their brains are still developing and until we're 27 our brains are still developing and so when they're not only just watching porn but watching it you know think about a 14 or a 15 year old boy like how much they masturbate right or fantasize yeah. I mean, they're they're watching porn that much or more on their little handhelds. You know, when my 25 year old was a teenager, I could I could control the computer access. Now they have smartphones. Their friends have smartphones. They have computers. They have pads. They have everything. Right. So it's no longer about controlling access to porn. It's about educating them because what we now know, and this is what's finally helped my boys understand is that if you are watching porn, what happens, what they're now realizing is that when, when we watch porn, the part of our brain that processes 2D objects is the part that is engaged. So what you are accidentally teaching your brain, when you're, when you, especially when your brain is still developing, but even if you're just compulsively watching it, is to sexually respond to a 2D object not to a 3D person. Mm. And so what they're starting to find is a slew of young men who are perfectly physically healthy, having erectile dysfunction or difficulty getting aroused with a 3D woman, not only because maybe they have a skewed sense of what women and men should look like and what women want sexually. You know, you touch her shoulder and she's, you know, or you ejaculate on her face and she screams with an orgasm, you know, like that's right. So it's a skewed sense of sex education. It's a horrible sex education of what arouses a woman. But as or more importantly, it changes the neural pathways in the brain so that you actually have trouble getting aroused by a real woman. And as soon as I, I remember my kids, because I have a line of sex toys 
And my boys, two of them were with some friends and they said, hey, mom, can we have a sex toy? And I said, yeah, you know, I'll give you one, but only if you'll use it with fantasy, not porn. And they were looked at me like I was talking great, you know, fantasy. what do you mean fantasy? Like they didn't even know what fantasy was because they never had to use it. They just have these porn images fed to them since the time they were first curious. And so I had to explain to them what fantasy was. Oh, you see a, you know, a girl that you think is hot. In this case, they were all heterosexual. You see a girl that you think is hot, or you even saw something on porn a few weeks ago that was really hot. You imagine it, right? Because when you imagine it, you're engaging a different part of your brain than when it's just being fed to you. Hey, it's Rob. I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. That's a perfect segue into my next question area and that's fantasy. So. Obviously, there are significantly different fantasies for men versus women. What is the typical male fantasy and what is the typical women's fantasy? And then I'll ask my question around it. Well, there, you know, it's interesting because it's really changing with porn, basically, yeah. and what's trending in porn. So now there's a lot more choking fantasies and things like that, which were never the case before. The most popular male fantasy was always, and I think fundamentally still is a threesome. Um, And women, you know, fantasize, and this is what they found with porn as well, that women get aroused contextually. So female-centric porn, a little bit that there is, actually has a plot, you know, (laughs) where there's a buildup and a seduction and a story, you know? There's no, what about the pizza delivery? That doesn't count? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. When he just shows up at the door and they start doing it. Right. Yeah, like, right. Yeah. That is the plot. That's what, <laughs> how much more of a plot do you need? Okay. Got it. Now. So you've got, you've got these two completely different, you know, uh, fantasies. One, one has a plot. The other one, you don't need a plot. Do you, is it a good idea for, because there's this, there's the fantasy that's in the bedroom. You know, you're, you're talking, you're, you're in the mood, you had a couple of glasses of wine and you're, you're telling crazy stories, right? And, and in that moment, the world seems perfect. But then some people step outside of that and some people say, you know, why don't we actually do it? Why don't we go get another partner? There's all kinds, of, there's an app for that, right? Like, let's go, do, let, let's go do it. What's your stance on that? You know, it depends. I think there is an extremely small piece of the pie of people who are secure enough and communicative enough and not prone to jealousy or insecurities who can handle bringing a third person into the relationship. And quite frankly, you know, the under 35ers are actually better at this in many ways than the older because they've really shed a lot of the, you know, the the boxes that we put ourselves into and the titles and they're much more exploratory. But the tricky part is, is that couples bring this in and think, okay, let's actually do it for real. 
But then afterwards, it's like, are you still thinking about that person? Or maybe you really are still thinking about this person and all these insecurities, it's such a slippery slope. And so in my opinion, unless the two of you are so excellent at communication and handling your own insecurities and really attuning, no jealousy, like I couldn't do it. And I think I'm a pretty evolved person. But I also am pretty possessive of my man. Like I don't want him to be with anyone else, even if it, even if I enjoy fantasizing about that. So, um, so I don't think it's easy for the majority of people to pull off. You know, living here in Italy, it's become very obvious to me that I grew up with um, some very strong puritanical American stuff. Yeah. And when I go to the beaches here and the girls are taking their tops off with, you know, it, I can't tell you how weird it is. Like if I went with you to the beach as a friend mm-hmm. and you just took your top off in front of me, yeah. I'm turning purple. Okay. Yeah. I can't, I don't know how to handle it. And uh-huh. my other friend, and I'll be there with my friend whose wife, you know, he's, he's yeah. the husband, he's the husband. And I'm like doing this because I can't, I can't look at it. So the question I have for you is, what are your thoughts on sort of the puritanical, like, like when I walk down the streets here, the cover of magazines, like even like the equivalent of Cosmo, there's topless women, right? The beaches, they're topless. Sexuality is just like shoulders, hooves or shoulders. The, The discussion here about sex is so like the 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 way that we are having a conversation right now maybe not to this level yeah. but they're perfectly fine with it we could never have this conversation where i was where i'm from in north america what's yeah. your thoughts on that overall well it's interesting cuz you're absolutely right we are so puritanical i mean when i was first starting my career 25 years ago and even as recently as five years ago, I was because I do a lot of television. I was told I could not say the word orgasm on air, even though I was talking. Literally, the segment was about arousal or orgasm <laughs> disorder or something. And I'm like, "What am I supposed to call it?" What they did you said, call it? They they said I was supposed to call it that special place. <laughs> oh my god! So I was on air, and I was like, "Well, you know, when a woman can't, as you are requiring, I call it." get to that special place. Um, It was ridiculous. And it still is. And we are very puritanical and people are worried about advertisers and, you know, opinions and we're raised that way. And yet I can't say orgasm on the nightly news, but you can watch on network television two people basically seeing everything, but you know, the tip of their penis and their nipples, right? Like it's, we're very explicit when it comes to our media in terms of the images we portray and sex is used to sell everything here. And yet we are extremely repressed while in Europe, um, especially where you are, you know, in countries, even like in Spain, where I lived for many years, which comes from a much more restrictive, repressive, especially on the heels of Franco and all of that, you know, they tend to be open, but also very repressed, right? Where in Italy, they're open and not so repressed. You know, it really oh, depends crazy. on the country, but um, and the history of that country. And our history is very puritanical. But I would say that in Europe in general, 
they talk the talk and walk the walk, while in the United States, they sort of talk the talk and they do not walk the walk. You know, it's, it's so interesting. I, there was a woman the other day, she must have been, she had to be late 80s, maybe early 90s. You know, I live right in the center of Florence. So she's like walking down, she's got like a neckerchief on and she's got high heels on the cobblestone. And yeah. she, she looked at me and she like, you know, just hit me with her eyes, this flirty oh. look. Oh, and yeah. she had me like in the, she was like 90. Oh, seduce. Oh my God. Like it's unbelievable. So I want to talk a little bit about marriage. A lot of the people who are listening to the show, they're married, they have kids. Mm -hmm. And if they were honest and you know, I'm, I'm approaching now 500 episodes. So I've heard all kinds of things from, from my listeners. And a common theme is that as they get a couple kids and time goes on, you know, sex is a 10th of what it once was. What's going on there? Why is that the case? Oh, God, there's so many reasons. Exhaustion, distractions, hormones, stress, body image from changing bodies, uh, resentments building up, conflict. You know, there's so many different reasons in a long term relationship why that happens. And especially once you have kids, I think the biggest culprit, honestly, especially in Western society, and in our country, is that we have a skewed sense of what sex, in particular, what sexual initiation is supposed to look like. So we think it's always supposed to be like in the beginning of the relationship when you didn't have kids and you didn't have responsibilities and you were going at it like rabbits and you mm -hmm. couldn't get enough of each other. And we think we're going to spontaneously find the time for sex and fall into bed together when we have two screaming kids. Like if you're waiting for sex to happen spontaneously, when you have kids, you're waiting forever, mm -hmm. right? So you really have to be, and that's a lot of my work with people is helping shift and, and create strategies for cultivating and continuing to cultivate your sexual relationship. And there are times in your relationship in the long Paul, especially if you're going to have a long-term monogamous relationship, and we're not, you know, we can put a pin in that. We can talk about that next, that we're not really designed for monogamy. So it does take commitment and effort. Um, you know, you have to keep redefining it. You have to make it a conscious priority. You have to schedule it in a way that can still be sexy and fun. Um, and, you know, what I find the most common question I get asked by couples in long-term relationships, you know, is how do we spice it up? Like, how do we, you know, and what they're really looking for, I could give them, and I do, I have plenty of books on this, you know, a year's worth of tools and toys and positions and role plays and fantasies and all kinds of things to spice it up. And, you know, they'll take that home. They'll do everything maybe once or twice. And then they'll come back and be like, okay, been there, done that. Give me more. What we're really looking for when we say spice it up and keeping it interesting is consistency and intensity. You know, that's what we're really, that's what maintains a healthy, fun, vibrant sexual connection. So consistency comes from not only scheduling it and making it a priority, but committing to flirting, committing to seduction, committing to, you know, not being complacent in your connection. What do you mean by intensity? Intensity comes with what we were talking about earlier, you know, uh, with the Tantra, right? Intensity comes from making it 
deeper and wider your emotional and physical sexual experience from each other. Because even a threesome or picking up a stranger in a bar or whatever, it gets old after four or five times. You know, like everything gets old except your commitment to being fully vulnerable and present physically, emotionally, and energetically in that exchange, you know? And when you can cultivate that and learn techniques for doing that, it's a much less superficial and much more sustainable pleasure. Okay. Inside of all of us, I would suspect that we have light and dark, right? We have the you know, the, the, uh, the Madonna, you know, what syndrome, right? It's, it's this sort of like, we want to be a dad, a mom, um, a brother, a sister, you know, the, the, the lighter side of things, but then, you know, there's the fantasy side. There's the, the three way, the let's get freaky. Let's try something that we never did. How do you manage the angel on one side and the devil on the other side of your shoulder? By acknowledging them both. I mean, there was a saying in Spain, I remember, it's probably in Italy too, that you want a, most most men in particular, want a lady on the street and a whore between the sheets, right? And I think it's true for you know men as well, that you can have both. You can have this very loving and reverent and um, cherishing kind of connection. And with trust and willingness to be vulnerable, right? Meaning expose yourself. I don't mean necessarily cry in front of someone, although that's part of vulnerability, but I mean, really opening yourself, then you absolutely, I think that part of the intensity that we're looking for is that playful, raunchy, no holes barred kind of intimacy that you can create in a loving relationship where you feel totally safe and cherished and honored and respected. You know, you can still get down and dirty. When you have that opportunity. All right. Speaking of down and dirty, as I was uh, looking at your website, uh-huh. I see that you've got your own line of toys. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, you know, pretty typical type toys that people would be familiar with. But there's some other ones that really got my attention. And <laughs> like what? <laughs> like the, the panty one. Oh, yeah. That's a popular one. Okay. So how... Walk me through... How one does the panty vibrator? Oh, I love, see, I love that one. It's such a good one uh, for, okay. So my favorite way to recommend, basically there are underwear that have a vibrating bullet in the crotch of the panties that you or ideally your partner can control. So they actually were in, uh, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, uh, The Ugly Truth with Katherine Heigl. No. Um, the guy, you know, gives her these vibrating panties that are mine, you know, from my line. And she decides to wear them to a business dinner, but she loses the remote. <laughs> and this little boy at the next table finds it. Oh, my God. Keeps setting her off at the table. But um, but the way that I design them or what I had in mind and the way I recommend people use them is like you wear them out to a boring cocktail party or to dinner or to whatever. And you're part, it's a very exciting and um, arousing secret, right? That your partner can zap you basically, you know, turn you on from across the room. It works, I think, 15 feet away. So you can be, you know, talking to different groups of people 
and zap your partner's panties, you know, turn them on from afar. So it's a fun, playful, arousing, exciting little form of foreplay. Did you invent this? Yeah. So you're the you're what's the what's the exact name of it? Um, those are called. I think they're called. They're all named after goddesses. I think those are called the Astrea uh, panties. But but I work with a company called Cal Exotics. I designed all the toys. Some of them, you know, are are variations on what has already existed. But I just tried to make a little bit better or quieter. Or they're they're mostly designed, you know, because at the time I started this line. There really weren't, you know, a lot of toys that were really designed with women in mind. Ironically, you know, and so uh, what? So women would say to me, "I've tried sex toys; they don't work." But the reason was their partner went to the toy shop and said, "If I were a woman, what would I want? Oh, that I would want that giant, huge, realistic, <laughs> realistic-looking dildo that twirls." Circles, no. Because <laughs> the one I thought was the one with the the double the double one. I thought that was the one. Oh, that was had. a good one. That is a good one too. Yeah, and that's I. You know, that's great for two women. It's also you know you can use it in a heterosexual situation too if you like a little tush stimulation. But um, but the one that women really loved, and this is a really fun one too, is the I think it's called the Adonis. But it basically has a, <laughs> has a suction cup on it. So you can put it on a wall or on the floor and it stimulates the clitoris and the G-spot at the same time. So if I'm your husband, I'm trying to figure out how I'm navigating this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're coming up on our 20-year anniversary. You're doing something right. Yeah. You know, and- you you met him, if, I, if my research is correct, uh, you met him... Uh, prior to the uh, the Oprah show and he came out to the Oprah show to meet you and then uh, made up a story about uh, uh, flew all the way back out to LA or something like that. Tell us the story of how you guys met. We actually knew each other as kids. When, when I was growing up in New York, we went to the same school. He was in the same class with my sister. Our parents were friends. And then we moved away when I was nine and everybody lost touch. And then he saw me on something. I don't remember what it was and reached out. And I sort of remembered him. And he said, if you're ever in Chicago, let me know. And so when I was there doing the Oprah show for the first time, he came to meet me. And he was just going through a divorce at the time. So I didn't want to touch him, even though I thought he was really cute and smart. And then he ended up reaching out to me again, many, almost a year later, saying, I'm going to be in LA for business. I was living in LA at the time. I'm going to be in LA for business. Um, You know, I would love to take you to the Madonna concert. So our first date was um, September 9th. 2001 before the Madonna concert. Second was September 10th for the Madonna concert. And then he was supposed to leave on the 11th. It was the September 11th. And he ended up spending a week in LA. And by the end, we were both in love. And that was it. Three months later, we were engaged. But he says, you know, he jokes about it now, but he says, you know, the the moment I realized I was really in love with you, and I barely remembered giving him this speech, but I guess I had learned to do it. As I said, look, you need to understand that. And I didn't mean it as an enticement. I meant it as a warning. Like you need to understand that I'm 90% sex. I talk about it. I think about it. I teach about it. It comes up all the time. So like you have to be totally comfortable with that to hang with me. 
which he is. The only thing he's not comfortable with me about is talk. And he told me this from the beginning. I'm not allowed to talk about the specifics of our sexual relationship. But it was weird for him because he would take me to like a work function, go and get me a drink and come back. And his female colleague would be telling me about her orgasmic disorder, you know? Yeah, and, right. Like, how do you I'm how do you in the not? twilight zone. You know? Right. Okay, I want to jump in for 15 seconds and say if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. You mentioned Oprah. I want to talk about Oprah for a little bit. How did your... How did you find yourself on the Oprah show? Did she find you? Did you find her? How'd that happen? Yeah, no, you don't find... I mean, you can find her, but... Yeah, right. She finds you. Okay. <laughs> she wants to. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had been living in Chicago. I went on the show when my first book came out, and then it was seven years. And, and during three of those years... I was living in Chicago and I was right there and I would pitch them regularly. You know, they don't even respond. But what was happening is I was actually doing a weekly radio thing with this local, these local DJs. Every Friday I would go in just for fun and help and take calls and questions. And several of the producers of the Oprah show would hear that because it was a drive radio show would hear that. So when Oprah was finally ready to do a sexual show, the show on female sexuality, they already knew who I was and they reached out and we ended up taping two back-to-back shows and they called me on the way home and said, Oprah is launching a new television station. This is when she was launching OWN and uh, we want you to do a show on the channel. So I ended up doing, and I and then I launched a radio show on Oprah Radio at the same time. So I had a, a daily radio talk show uh, for two hours live on Oprah radio until they stopped doing original content. And then was her sex and relationship expert until she stopped doing the show and also launched two shows on own. How did that affect your life? Was there like a hockey stick moment? You know, I have a friend uh, here uh, in, uh, in Florence who's been on the show a couple of times and there was a real hockey stick moment where he started getting recognized in the street and things like that. What was it like for you when, I don't know, you started becoming famous? It, I never, I was always very positive and easy. I mean, it was a little weird. Like I could, you know, I because you can imagine what people are coming up and saying to me, you know, right. I was in an airplane bathroom and I come out and the steward, you know, the flight attendant had basically blocked the, you know, like they do for the captain. She had blocked with the cart. You know, my exit said, listen, I, I, I just need to ask you questions. She wanted to know about menopause or something. You know, oh. so people would, that was the part that was interesting is that people would literally come up to me and be like, listen, no, I have a yeah. problem. Right. Um, but for the most part, you know, it was, it was lovely and, and positive. And, and I never had any negative experiences with people recognizing me or coming up and, speaking to me and they were usually pretty respectful if I was, you know, with my family or with my kids, they were right. just- I, I would hope so. Um, let's talk a little bit of one more uh, celebrity. Eva Longoria has decided that she's going to produce a show based on your life. How did that come about? Um, 
Boy, you know, that has happened so many times. Eva was just one of them. And it'll eventually actually come to pass. But, you know, in Hollywood, these things start and then stop and start and stop. I met her through this like random producer that I was friends with who had worked with her. And he said, you need to do something on your life because, you know, my life is insane. What, you know, the things I see and the things that have happened, just my personal life, not to mention what I do for a living. Yeah. And so they were the ones that introduced me to Eva, who was lovely and really into it. It ended up falling through, not because of her, but because of some of the people that she works with who were had, you know, were not ideal. But yeah. um, and then I actually started to do it with Sherry Salata and Nate Burkus. So Sherry was the president Loser. of Harpo and Own and the executive producer of the Oprah show. And Nate Burkus is the well-known designer, designer yeah. who actually produced The Help. I had no idea that movie. He, Nate Bur- Nate One of the producers, yeah. Who, I didn't even know he was a producer. Me either, until they started a production company after Sherry left Harpo and Own to do her own thing after 25 years. Right. And they started a production company and then they reached out to me. And and then we were looking at doing it again. You know, it's happened so many. Eventually I'll do it, but it just never really, you know, it has to be the right circumstance. Amazing. Okay. So as we uh, as we wrap, I'm going to take a couple of minutes with you and I want to go through some questions that might seem like, why is he asking me these? These are weird. Um, but I want to get people to learn a little bit more about you. So first one is, what do people often get wrong about you? That like what you did, that I'm a sex surrogate and not a sex therapist. I like my idea better, but that's fine. <laughs> What is one thing that you have not gotten to in your life? And if you don't get to this, you're going to have some regret. Um, Hiking up to Machu Picchu. Mm. What are some things that you're currently doing that you don't really love and you would like to do less of? Absolutely nothing. I've gotten to that point in my life and I'm so freaking grateful. Oh, you mean that? Oh, you mean that everything you're doing in your life you love to do? Anymore that I don't, I literally don't do anything, including for my kids, that I don't have a full body yes to. A full body yes. I like that better than a fuck yes. A full body yes. Ooh, that's good. I like that. Okay. Um, What new behavior or habit has most improved your life? Um, you know, it's not that new, but I guess in the course of my life, it's new. It's meditation. That has definitely, and that's been over the past seven or eight years. But since I've been consistently doing that, that has drastically changed my life. And what kind of meditation do you do? All different. Um, but I started with transcendental meditation and now I go into that state many times a day, like throughout the day, I'm constantly grounding and tapping in and tuning in and, um, and cal- you know, calming my system down and getting back into my body. Yeah, it's really good. I did TM in LA um, because a thousand people said TM. So I did it and my God, it's, it's, li- it's, it's sure. life. Yeah, it's life changing. Um, yeah. What is an unusual, we'll, we'll leave sex off the table here. What's an unusual or absurd thing that you love. Most people would think it's really weird or it's really <laughs> unusual, but I love it. Outside. Ah, of sex. What is it? Gosh. Um, 
I don't think I love you know anything really weird. Um, I do love. Uh, most people don't know that I love painting, and I also <laughs> love. Um, I don't know how I got started on this because I'm not a particular. I don't so I'm not a homemaker at all. I don't even cook, but I love embroidery, and I do have this thing about making um, embroidered vulvas. Did you say embroidered vulvas? Yeah, you know, like vulvas, like what most people call a vagina incorrectly. The vagina is the, and you know, up inside the hole. Oh, I know. You know, I got it. I got it. I just, in my mind, I was having trouble embroidering yeah, a vulva. Like beautiful embroidered images that I put on, like, I just gave my girlfriend this denim shirt with this giant vulva on the back. You win. You win the most absurd, <laughs> craziest. You're the winner. I'm granting you the winner. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Um, I would spend a month in Bali where I've never been and I've been obsessed with since I was a little girl. So that would be on the bucket list too. And, and just like live in a little shack on the beach and meditate and paint and embroider my vulvas and play <laughs> and explore all the temples. <laughs> Amazing. Are there any um, positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, uh, where you've changed your mind substantially? You've shifted your position. You know, you're like, I used to think this way about that, but I, I, I changed my mind. I don't, I don't think that way anymore. Um, I feel like I change my mind all the time. Um, and as I, you know, continue to grow and expand emotionally and spiritually, I think what it what is most changed for me is that I have strong beliefs, but I am not convinced I'm right ever. And so what ha I think has set me apart and may often is lonely in today's world, especially in American societies, that everything is so polarized and everyone is convinced they're right and the other side is wrong. And I'm sitting here looking around being like, can't you guys see that like both of you are right and both of you are wrong? And, you know, it's it's sort of I often feel like I'm in this meta perspective that no one else is sharing. <laughs> it's kind of so I would say that definitely has changed for me because I used to be in one of the camps, right, where you are wrong and I am right. And now I can see all the misunderstandings more than who is right and wrong. Meditation probably helps with that. Um, with every new level comes a new devil. What are you currently struggling with? Um, I would say probably my motivation to produce, to create. You know, I've I've been such a producer my whole adult life. And, you know, over the past year, I've really taken some time off and it's been so wonderful and I love my life so much that it's hard to motivate in a way that it's never been hard to motivate before. Different stage of your life. Really interesting. Yeah. Uh, a couple more questions. If you can narrow it down to one thing that has had the greatest impact on your success, what would it be? My traumas. Your I, traumas. Traumas. Yeah. My... Um, Every single time, you know, I call them AFGEs, another freaking growth experience. Like those, those horrible things that have happened to me um, really throughout my life, you know, um, 
but certainly in my adult life as well, every single one of them, whether it was breast cancer or my mother dying or my father dying or, um, you know, some of the emotional abuse that I, that I suffered and the sexual and physical abuse I witnessed as a child, all of that has been my greatest teacher and also the source of inspiration to heal and learn and teach. It's all informed my work so hugely. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? That I wish they did? Yeah. Um, I don't know. People ask me whatever the hell they want, mm-hmm. but I guess <laughs> um, nobody holds anything back when asking me questions. And if they don't ask, I'll just volunteer it. I don't have much of a filter. Yeah. I wouldn't say there's anything I wish. Anything. That's because you're super open. Um, two more questions. What is your guilty pleasure? Uh, chocolate for sure. Uh, and um, watching, um, <laughs> I do when I like need a pick me up or I just need to zone out. I love, I can't understand why I love watching Hallmark movies. Really? Really cheesy, cheesy, cheesy Hallmark or or like movie. Oh my God. And around the holidays, I like the princess for Christmas kind of stuff. Like, I I don't know where that comes from. It's got to be a chick thing. My wife is exactly the same. All right. Last question. We're going to change it up. What one question would you like to ask me? Oh, all right. Let's think. What's your sex life like? That's such a broad question. How do I, how do I narrow that down? You mean like, well, huh? How about this? What would you most like to change or improve upon or explore in your sex life? I'll pick, those are, those are all different questions. So I'll pick one of them. And I would say, um, frequency. And here's the here's the unfair thing that I did to my wife. When I was in LA, I wanted to have my testosterone checked. Mm-hmm. And testosterone, you know, in your mid twenties is usually 900, let's say. Mine was around 420 and I'm 55 years old. So mm-hmm. the doc said, you know, if you get on hormone replacement therapy, um, in a couple of months, you'll start seeing the benefits of it. Uh, sexually, you'll, your, your sex drive will increase um, and, and all of the things that are associated with increased testosterone levels. I didn't notice anything for about 90 days, almost to the day. And then, <laughs> holy shit. Your desire went through the roof. When I yeah. tell you my desire went through the roof, I was a creepy old man like looking at everything that was walking by. And I, it was exactly like 16 years old where you just want to stick it into any hole. Like, you know, the, uh, what's the movie where he puts it in the, the apple pie, like, you know, American pie. American pie. Yeah, there you go. Like literally I was that guy <laughs> and went back. He looked at the numbers and it was too high. It was 1400. So they dialed me back and I got down and that was, you know, about two years ago. My wife did not do that for her, for her hormones. 
So we have radically different drives now as I'm aging. I've because I feel so good uh, on testosterone. Um, I just think it wasn't like it was. I don't know. I, I have to ask her. I don't know. I, I just gave myself my testosterone shot before I got on the air with you. I was due for it. To, you know, I do it once a week. Yeah. Uh, and I'm in my fifties too. I think you know. Especially if you're, we could do a whole show on hormones and the medical causes of low desire and sexual issues. But, um, you know, women need testosterone too for energy, for general sense of well being, for muscle tone, for desire, for sexual response. So, what you've done is you've, you now have a healthy hormonal balance and she doesn't. Right. Right. So, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to. We're gonna have to get to her. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to get. We'll make that a part two. Do a couple session. How about that? That'll be really fun. That'll be. It'll be so much fun. And speaking of, you have a new podcast. Um, Can you tell me the name of the podcast? I want to make sure we get it right. It's called The Language of Love with Dr. Laura Berman. It's all about how to love and be loved better. And I have all sorts of amazing. It's interviews. It's from like a mind, body, and spirit perspective. So we talk. I talk to all kinds of teachers and thought leaders and uh, all about how to love and be loved better. Amazing. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Um, no, just keep keep growing and keep exploring your sexuality, your ability to love, to let in love. And you know, definitely follow. You can follow me on social media. I'm always putting up tips and 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 ideas there. That's all at Dr. Laura Berman. Oh, and I have a free program on my website called Seven Days to Better Sex. So you get a video and sort of a write-up every day and it helps you jumpstart your sex life. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. It was fun. Good to be with you. All right. We're out. You crushed it. That was awesome. I loved it. Thank you so much. And I do think it would be fun to do a couple. So if you guys want to even come on my show, we can do it on yours or on mine. I would, I would love to. So many couples deal with. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Do you know um, Cindy Eckert, E-C-K-E-R-T? I know that name, but I can't. So she uh, had her on the show. Um, She's now a a new friend. Um, She exited her company. She did a female Viagra pharmaceutical and she tried for like... Oh, right. She did. What was the name of that? Yeah. Oh, you know what it was called? It's it's easy to remember. It's the lady. She named it after the lady from Grey's Anatomy. Oh. It was the... Yeah, it was the doctor on Grey's Anatomy. Not Meredith. The uh, the one um, Matt, maybe Madison some something like that. Anyway, um, she sold it for a billion dollars. She had a giant exit, um, and now she is. I think she wound up buying the company back. But you two have a lot in common uh, mm-hmm. in this area. Um, so, if you want, like I was, I yeah, absolutely. Put her back in touch with me. I feel like I did some work with her when she's she, always in pink before, before she sold the company and was trying to get FDA approval or something. And I was helping with that. 
And then she just, bit, but see, it was a little weird because if I, rem- I don't remember all the details, but if I remember correctly, she wasn't very, like she, she was kind of sneaky about selling it. Like she got it to a certain point and got all these people invested in it and then just bailed, you know, sold it and bailed. Uh, Interesting that she's coming back to, I mean, I don't care. It didn't affect me any, but I remember there was some controversy around it. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's uh, she, her Instagram is something like the pink CEO. Um, she wears pink every day. Like it's just, it's, that's her thing. She's like Mary Kay. Um, but check yeah, check her out. Cindy Eckert, E-C-K-E-R-T. Um, and uh, I don't know. I just feel like you two would connect. She's, she was lovely. Sure. Absolutely. I'm well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me on and accommodating the times and everything else. Happy to do it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.